Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Gronyni A, and this week, why is Ireland reopening now and how should people feel about it? If you told us back in December that nightclubs will be fully open again before the end of January, and you wouldn't need a mask or a COVID pass to get into one, none of us would have believed you. But in the space of a few weeks, we've gone from queues for boosters and record high daily COVID cases to the lifting of almost all restrictions on businesses, the end of social distancing, and the closest we've been to normality since the pandemic began. It's weird and it's wonderful, but it's hard not to find it all a bit strange. So, what will the coming weeks look like? Will we see another wave of infections? Will hospitals come under pressure again? And how can we expect people's behaviours to change? Joining me on the podcast today to discuss all of this is Pete Lunn, the head of the ESRI's Behavioural Research Unit, which has been monitoring public sentiment throughout the pandemic, and Christine Losher, Professor of Immunology at Dublin City University. Christine, the reports began to leak out on a Thursday night that NEPET had recommended a whole swathe of restrictions to be lifted, and then the Taoiseach's announcement came the next day confirming those reports. I think we were all quite stunned. Are you surprised? Yeah, I think even though it's the day we've been waiting for for a long time, I think the nation still kind of like had a sharp intake of breath. Um, I think the surprising piece was it was kind of all bets are off, like literally overnight, which we weren't expecting. And we had been highly critical, I suppose, of the UK and Scotland kind of doing that just beforehand. That said, um, we've done staggered um, unlocking of our restrictions before And that kind of staggering has really been because there was still a variant around. So the last time, obviously, it was Delta that was having a really significant impact on um, hospitalizations and ICUs. This time round, we were unlocking at 12,000 cases a day and we probably were up to about 40 or 50,000 in early January with still no real significant impact on the healthcare system. So I think there was probably a thinking that there was no need to stagger because actually there was a lot of capacity for case numbers to go up with a a very much overnight kind of unlocking of restrictions and that we know that the translation into um, hospitalizations and ICU really wouldn't happen. So I think that this is a very different situation. We've only unlocked before in a staggered manner with other variants. Omicron is very different. Our immunization and boosting status is like second to none. And we never had that when we unlocked before. So I think the surprise was kind of around that this is not what we did before. But actually, there has to be a realization that the situation that we're in at the moment with regard to the how this virus is behaving, in particular, that it's not causing um, as much severe disease as the previous variants, coupled with our boosted status, I think that that's the reason that we were able to do it in the manner that we have. So even though it's surprising in one way, in another way, it's probably completely warranted given the situation we find ourselves in. So as we go back to doing normal things again, are we expecting another COVID wave to follow? So you'll notice that every time that we have opened up it has always resulted in case numbers. So the last time we opened up was in uh, late August and into September when we opened up schools, universities, public transport. We got people back to work. 
all of that happened within a couple of weeks and we did see an increase in case numbers even though we had a lot more other restrictions in place at the time omicron is much more transmissible so we are likely to see um, a much bigger increase in case numbers maybe um, than we have before in the staggered openings that we've had and i don't think that that will be a surprise uh, to see an increase in case numbers and I think that given that it's not translating into the public health risk that we had before around hospitalizations and ICU, I don't think that a surge in case numbers is as concerning as it might have been if it was Delta or Alpha. So will there be a sustained kind of pressure on the healthcare service as a result of the reopening wave, albeit at a lower level, as you mentioned, compared to, to previous waves? So the latest kind of figures that we've had um, from hospital settings in particular is that even though the numbers went up to, you know, eight or nine hundred in hospital, about half of those, I know the Minister for Health came out and said about half of those weren't in being treated for COVID, that it was an incidental um, on top of whatever they were being treated for. So the numbers that were being hospitalized with COVID as the primary factor were actually much lower than the numbers that we were hearing about hospitalizations. There wasn't really any translation into ICUs and predominantly people in ICU are still in there with Delta. I think that the pressure on the on the healthcare system, while there has been sustained pressure over time, I think that pressure will start to release in the coming weeks and months given that Omicron is not um, the same type of virus that we've seen before in terms of how it impacts on people's health. So I think that in the short term, case numbers may go up. It may result in a small number of hospitalizations, but not to the extent that we've seen with previous variants. Christine, the Taoiseach has stressed that the boosters were so important at Christmas. Just how important were those extra doses? They were absolutely vital. So the the science that we have at the moment says that the boosting dose that um, you got with that third booster gave you 90% protection against hospitalization with Omicron. And it has no doubt played a significant part in that uncoupling of our case numbers translating into hospitalizations and ICU. So the science is very strong around boosters. It's been shown to be very strong, particularly around Omicron in terms of severity. So I think those boosters and that acceleration of the booster program that we saw, particularly through December, was absolutely vital in preventing the impact that Omicron could have had on the general population, um, particularly those over the age of 60. We saw case numbers absolutely like, you know, go into a steep decline after boosters were given to that age group. So there was a really significant impact. And I think it's really important that people understand that just because Omicron doesn't cause as severe disease in most people and that the the case numbers have decreased, I think we need to really be very clear that continuing with the booster program to the rest of the younger age groups is going to be a key tool in actually helping us stay open. I actually think it's going to be a key enabler of the opening up of society. So, you know, people really need to get their boosters when they can. I think the decline in booster uptake is a lot to do with the fact that people who've been infected very recently with Omicron have to wait three months. 
but we are seeing slower uptake in some of the younger age groups. So we do need to get that message out there that boosting has played a significant role to get us where we are with the reopening. But keep keep on boosting is going to keep us there. We've heard that many more people have been infected in recent weeks than the official figures suggest. Do we have any idea what percentage of the population have been infected during the Omicron wave? And can that be seen as a good thing in the long term? We certainly know that we were having way more cases than we were able to record. And that was really predominantly due due to testing capacity, but also potentially due to the fact that because Omicron was presenting in people who were vaccinated and boosted, a lot of the time people were having it were completely asymptomatic and potentially didn't know. The WHO's kind of predictions were that about half the people in Europe were going to get Omicron. Um, So it is likely that we've had, you know, maybe a million, a million and a half cases since Omicron came on the scene. So we have had a significant uh, proportion of the population um, infected with Omicron. And while infection with any virus is never a positive thing, I think the side effect of having so many of the population infected with Omicron is that the the side effect has been that it has increased our level of population immunity um, because we've had that scale of infection. So I suppose it's trying to look for the silver lining on that cloud of Omicron rather than infection um, being seen as a positive thing. I know that a lot of people have, you know, talked about, well, if Omicron is so mild, why don't we just let everybody get it and it'll all be fine? But we are still trying to figure out a lot about this virus, particularly the long term impacts uh, issues around long COVID. So avoiding infection is 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 really important. But the side effect of it has topped up our population immunity and has added to the level of immunity that we've had. So that's been the side effect. And that's a positive thing for us going forward, that we now have a lot of immunity with natural infection. We've got significant immunity with vaccinations and now with boosters. And that's left us in a very, very, really a very good position in terms of how we might deal with another variant. And that leaves us in a very positive position and we're well prepared. And I don't really, I think the science around how our immune system might deal with another variant is very strong in that even if our antibody levels wane, our T cells in the background, which is what you get switched on predominantly with vaccination and and boosting, they're able to deal with any variant. They're different antibodies. They don't have to be as specific. And the science is very strong now that our level of population immunity will really protect us from severity of a future variant. I think it's important for people to know that because I think that's a really good encouraging piece for people around getting vaccinated and particularly getting boosted. A lot of people got boosters or were infected around the same time. So what happens when their antibody levels start to wane at the same time? And when exactly will that be? Just because of the stage we were at during the kind of um, uh, transmission of, of Omicron, it just coincided. Uh, people got infected you know, around the same time they were getting their boosters. So their boosters would have been um, the vaccine to the original strains. They would have got a boost of immunity those antibody levels uh, would have been non-specific, so they weren't specifically for Omicron. They would have got a good boost of antibody levels that would have given them a lot of protection. If you look at people then who got an infection on top of that, 
that would have given them specific antibodies to Omicron and therefore a higher level of protection to reinfection with Omicron. In terms of waning immunity, like waning immunity from a natural infection and from vaccination happens over time. It happens with the antibody levels, not the other arm of the immune response, that T-cell response that we know is so important against severity. So whether you've been infected or not, the fact that you've been boosted, you will have high immunity for a few months. That immunity will wane over time. And pretty much everyone will be in the same boat in that if another variant comes along, we may need another boost. Or it may be that down the line, we talk about very specific boosters for the specific variants of the time. Remember, we're still vaccinating people against the original strain of this virus. So there's not going to be specific immunity from vaccination to whatever variant is there at the time. And that's why it's important to know that it's not all about the antibodies. That T-cell response is really important and we're very well protected um, with our current vaccinations and boosters. So people have been co-infected and been boosted. It won't really make any difference down the line. In fact, they'll probably have better protection and their immunity will wane less fast. But we're probably all going to be in the same boat in the future in terms of potentially needing a top up of immunity with another variant. What's going to be the next big challenge for the government and health authorities over the coming weeks and and later this year then? I mean, the bit in the background is, is that we don't know, we never know what's going to happen next with the virus. So, you know, we can't really predict where we're going to be in two months time or six months time. We can't predict what next winter is going to be like. Um, I think the biggest challenge for the government is about the level of preparedness that they have for what happens next. So it's about designing a strategy for what happens if another variant comes along? What happens if that variant is very vaccine evasive? If our current vaccines are not going to impact the way they have before with previous variants, what happens if it's very severe and it's going to impact on our healthcare system? So I think the biggest challenge when you're coming out of something like this is to make sure that you don't forget what can happen when a crisis comes along like another variant. And I think that the challenge is going to have a very clear strategy around what is in place and what do we activate the next time. We have to make sure our testing and tracing capacity is able to be ramped up literally overnight. I think we've had problems in the past with previous waves where testing capacity um, has not been where it's needed to be. And that's grown all the way through the pandemic. We have to make sure that if we if we start to roll back on that as our case numbers drop, we have to be able to scale up immediately. We have to continue addressing the issues that have really come to the fore in the healthcare system in terms of bed capacity, ICU capacity, specialised nurses for ICU, for example, and how we manage the rest of the care in healthcare outside of COVID if another variant comes along. So I think a lot of the challenges are going to be around making sure that we don't all just go back to the way things were and that we all have a crisis if another variant comes along. We have a lot of other things in our back pocket this time. We've got antivirals, for example, that we didn't have before that can treat people. We've got a really vibrant vaccination and booster program and we need to know what happens next in that program. And that's very much going to be decided by the next variant that comes along, what the WHO might say about um, our next phase of vaccination, other countries' experiences, for example. So 
The challenges ahead are making sure that we can respond faster and better the next time than we have done previously because of the knowledge um, and the infrastructure that we've built up. Pete, I'm going to turn to you now. Were you surprised at the government's decision to open up so suddenly? Uh, Of course, yes, I was surprised. I think almost everybody was surprised. I think the members of NEFIT have been surprised themselves with how well we had done. And by how well we'd done, I mean, despite this huge wave of Omicron infection, how few people had ended up um, in hospital intensive care. And I think the politicians were surprised too. I think everybody was surprised. And so they should be because essentially the science and the numbers had changed on us in a way that we couldn't possibly anticipate. Um, And I think it's really important actually to understand that. So yes, I was extremely surprised, but it's really important to understand what changed. I mean, what changed was not the politics. It wasn't people's attitudes. It wasn't the pessimism or optimism of Neffet or how conservative or cautious they were. What changed was we learned something. Um, And what we learned was to do with science and numbers. And what we learned was essentially extremely good news that in a society that has the level of vaccination that we have and is behaving the way we do, we could weather the storm of an enormous surge in the Omicron variant. And because we can weather that storm, that now gives us the opportunity to have more freedom. So yes, I was extremely surprised, but I think it's really important to understand what the source of the surprise was. And as a behavioral scientist, I know that people don't like uncertainty very much. And even with hindsight, we tend to sort of belittle it. So it's really important to know that what happened here was not likely to happen. It wasn't certain to happen. It's really good news. It came up. uh, We we threw the dice and we got a six, basically. That's a nice way of putting it. When it was announced that restrictions will be lifted in one go, especially when some of those restrictions hadn't been lifted before, what does that indicate to the public? Does it give them the impression that COVID isn't a threat anymore? Well, I think certainly, I mean, it's bound to give a message that says that the level of risk to you as an individual and to us as a society is lower than previously we thought. And that's absolutely correct. It is. And it's important that that message gets across and we should feel comforted by it. That does cause some difficulty, though, of course, because we're surprised and we're essentially told that the virus is less dangerous to us and society generally than we had previously thought. And therefore, as individuals, we have to decide sort of how much to move the dial, if you like, in our own behavior, how much to adjust our own behavior for that level of risk. And I think that's going to be very important going forward now that we give a kind of clear narrative for how to move that dial. When is it we still have to be cautious and when is it okay to be less cautious, given that we appreciate now that the overall level of risk to us and to society more generally has changed. So yes, I think it's bound to give that message, but how it gives that message and what narrative we put on it is really important. What data do we have at the moment that tells us how people feel about this decision? So we do have data on opinions and attitudes um, following the Taoiseach's decision about opening up the economy and society. We don't yet have good data on behaviour. We'll get that over the next week or two. But on opinions and attitudes, it's actually an interestingly mixed response. So the good news is that worry, the people's overall level of worry about the pandemic has fallen. And it's come back down to the levels it was at around August of September last year. Not quite, but almost back to those levels. And that's the lowest it's been through the whole pandemic, that kind of level. So it hasn't surpassed that. We're not at the lowest level of worry ever. So that idea hasn't lodged in people's minds that this is somehow over and there's nothing left to worry about. But it is back down to the lowest levels that it had been at previously. So that's really good news. The average level of worry has fallen. 
But for a substantial section of the population, there is clearly anxiety associated with this as well. So we've seen a jump in the proportion of people who say they want more restrictions again. So that's up to 31%. So almost a third of the population, when asked directly, should there be fewer restrictions, or sorry, should there be more restrictions or not, say yes, actually there should. So there's about a third of the population who's really a bit uncomfortable about the decision. And really interestingly, one of the questions that we've been monitoring throughout about are we trying to return at the right speed to normal? So people have three options on that question. They can say, yeah, we're going too quickly, we're going too slowly, or we're going about right. There's been a big jump in the proportion of the population that think we're trying to return to normal too quickly, and it's up to 49%. So almost half the population actually thinks we're trying to go too fast here. Now, of course, it's possible that they haven't fully absorbed the change in the science and the numbers, which is, you know, has happened rapidly and was what drove the Taoiseach's decision. So it may be that they'll come round. But the initial response to the announcement is more mixed than the media coverage to date would give you reason to believe. On that note, people adapted very quickly to lockdowns. Can they adapt in the same way to unlocking? Uh, you know, if people are, are struggling with this, will they be able to adapt quickly to it? Well, we've some past experience of this. So we've lifted restrictions before, not as suddenly uh, as in this case. But one of the things that's very interesting that happened when we did this previously was actually behavior took quite a while to adjust. So when restrictions have been imposed, you're right, people have responded really quickly. Um, and typically within a day or two, the overwhelming majority of the population has radically altered their behavior. That is unlikely to happen going the other way based on our experience so far. So where restrictions have been lifted previously, it's taken a lot longer for people to adjust their behaviour than actually I think even the politicians and the public health people assumed. Throughout the pandemic, there's been this kind of assumption in the public debate that people are clamouring to get back out there and do things again. And doubtless we've all felt that way at times. Actually, when we look at the behavioural data, as restrictions are eased, we have what we call in our lab a, a behavioural lag. It actually takes time and people go slowly, they dip the toe in the water, they start socialising again slowly, and it kind of accelerates. And we've seen that lag can be as much as eight or 10 weeks um, of people changing their behaviour in response to the lifting of restrictions. Some of that's just about planning. It's just about you don't have anything planned in diaries and events and so on, and they start planning again. But some of it is just about people wanting to go cautiously. And there's no reason not to. I mean, you know, taking your time about it and allowing it just to sort of gently accelerate is probably quite a comfortable way to do it. And there's no major loss to you from doing it that way. So I think people are just much slower in responding to these kind of events than we might initially anticipate. All we really have to go on about what people feel is the, the research, the uh, more research, and then the debate on the airwaves and in the media about how people feel about restrictions. Do strong personalities skew our view of what the public want uh, disproportionately? Uh, they have throughout the pandemic, to be honest. So, I mean, the answer to your question is a straightforward yes. I don't know if it's strong personalities so much as the people you hear the most. So in the debate, you're always going to be hearing from the people who are the most upset by restrictions, the people who are losing the most money, the people who are lobbying for change because it's in their commercial or political interests. And that does skew the general perception. So one of the jobs that my lab has had throughout this pandemic, um, and the Amoric data help us to do that too, but the, the study that we have a kind of social activity measure looking at what people are actually doing, measuring their behavior, and then looking at how they perceive that behavior. 
what we find is that typically the public have been more cautious than the public debate and at times very substantially more cautious than the public debate. So, yeah, you're right. Perceptions do get skewed by it. And, you know, part of our job is to point this out by using data from representative samples. So to give you an idea of that, uh, prior to this announcement, there was no clamour for the lifting of these restrictions. Um, actually, on balance, people thought the government were going at about the right pace in terms of the level, both the level of restrictions and the speed at which talking about lifting them and um, the, the, the policy was moving. So this will have come as a shock. Now, of course, you know, that doesn't mean that what they've done is unpopular because people didn't know that the science and the numbers were working as well for us as they were until that gets communicated. I mean, sure, we had an idea that Omicron was less severe, but the scale of that and what the numbers looked like had not really sunk in. So until we get new data, we can't really tell how popular the latest decision is, what the level of anxiety might be. But you are absolutely right that our perceptions get skewed by the public debate, and it tends to be the case that the public is more cautious than the public debate. Looking forward to the future and the reopening longer term, what type of behavioural changes might we see among the public? Well, I think this is a really interesting question. And as a scientist, I like evidence. So I, I'm always very wary about gazing into crystal balls. Um, you can make some inferences from past behaviour to present behaviour. And you can also make some inferences from what people say they want to do and what people expect. But you have to be really careful. I mean, if you ask people now, oh, you know, will you keep two metres from people on an ongoing basis? Will you keep wearing a mask after the pandemic has died down? You'll find that quite a lot of people will say yes, when in fact they probably won't that when the social norm changes, when their habits change gradually over time, actually they'll work their way back more towards how it used to be. But that doesn't mean that some people won't. And I think one of the things that's true is we now are, um, unfortunately, in a generation that ended up learning far more about how respiratory viruses transmit than any of us probably ever wanted to. And that is likely to have an ongoing impact on how we behave and how close we are to people and um, you know how we respond when we see that somebody's got symptoms of a respiratory virus and so on. So yeah, there are likely to be those kind of long-term impacts, but they're probably not going to be as large as people say they are when surveyed because we underestimate our own changes in habits and our changes over periods of time. Um, I think there are other long-term behaviours where we have genuinely learned, so not kind of day-to-day you know, -day behaviours about transmission, but other behaviours where we've learned things about ourselves, about our homework relationships, about our family relationships, about our social relationships, where I think long-term behaviour change is much more likely. So when we ask people whether they want to go back to life before the pandemic, whether they would like things to go back to how they were exactly as they were in March 2020. The majority of people tell us no. We give people a seven-point scale on that, and most people will give us a response between four and seven on completely different versus exactly the same. So if one is exactly the same and seven is completely different, most members of the population actually are going to give us a scale, something at the top end of that scale, meaning they don't want to go back to March 2020. They've learned things about themselves and they want to change things about their lives. Interestingly, that effect is a little bit stronger among younger people, but it's also there among older people too. Longer term, are some of those behavioural changes going to be negative, you know, particularly about social distancing or staying away from, from each other? They could be. One of the things that we have measured, um, and is very interesting actually, is the extent of loneliness that people report. 
And loneliness can become kind of habitual and difficult to, to get out of. I mean, if, if you've been in a situation where you haven't been socializing as much, and particularly if you're a more kind of introverted, shy individual, then, you know, getting back out there and reconnecting and re-socializing may actually be quite awkward at times. Now, we can see that a lot of people do report quite high levels of loneliness during the pandemic. That actually, interestingly, is strongest among people who are aged in their 40s. And it's generally stronger among younger adults and older adults, which is the opposite of what we tend normally to think of in society, that there's this sort of typical stereotype of older people becoming more lonely as, you know, obvious things happen in later life that might limit their socialization and their mobility and, you know, how many of their friends and peers are still alive and all the things that we think um, might affect loneliness in old age. But I mean, interestingly, at the moment, younger adults are far lonelier than older adults. And as we come out of it and we try to change that, it may take some time to change and some people may really struggle um, to get over that difficulty. Is that kind of another phase of the pandemic then, trying to correct that probably through communications or, or how would you go about correcting it? I wish I knew how to correct it. I think it's very difficult, but I think if policy is sensitive to it, it will help. So um, I'm really pleased, actually, that the focus has been very much on lifting restrictions that are good restrictions for young adults to get them socialising again. And there's a, a, been a focus on that here. I think that's really important because, as I say, we can see that in the loneliness data. We can also see it in the mental health and well-being data. The people who've borne the brunt of the pandemic, not from a physical health point of view, but a mental health point of view, are young adults. So I think policy that tries to focus on... Uh, activities for young adults and trying at all costs, if we can, to keep those open, have a bigger benefit given the kind of mental health and well-being and loneliness data that I'm talking about here. So just an awareness of that and where we decide to prioritise, I think prioritising things like college, prioritising things like uh, physical activity and social activity for younger people is a good thing to be doing. One of the reasons the Taoiseach said we were reopening in, in one go was because there was no public health rationale there anymore and they wanted to keep the public's trust, basically, that the, when there isn't public health rationale to do it, they won't be there, the restrictions. If there is another surge in COVID cases or in hospitalizations due to COVID, do we know whether a majority of people will accept strict restrictions again? Uh, we don't know, but we have good reasons to suspect that they will. So I think I first got asked the question, could the public take any more in terms of restrictions in April 2020? Um, obviously, we're a good bit beyond that now. Um, so throughout the pandemic, this question has been, oh, people will just get sick and tired of this. They won't go to the well again. They won't be willing to do this again. Actually, that's always turned out not to be the case. One of the really interesting things about what's just happened is we actually measured the largest degree of behavioural change between mid-December and January that we've measured since we started looking at it properly, since we started measuring it properly. So the response from the public to the Omicron wave actually was to reduce their social contacts and where they were having social contacts to have them more carefully. And the extent of that, the degree of change we saw in people reducing their social contacts was the largest we'd seen in over a year. So this latest wave, people responded really, really well, actually. So to give you an idea of that, uh, the number of close contacts on a daily basis reduced by 40% from um, kind of around the end of November to the middle of January, despite the fact that Christmas was in that period. 
So I think that's really encouraging from the point of view of the public's willingness when there is a genuine threat and when they are told about that genuine threat to change their behavior and do something about it. And I suspect that they'll do the same again. The primary reason for that is because most of the public get that this is a collective action problem where how we all behave is going to affect the outcomes for all of us. And that logic, I think, is understood by the majority of the public. There's maybe around, we estimated at around 15% who reject that kind of public health logic that we all have to make some sacrifices in our lives for each other. There's about 15% of the population that reject that logic and don't tend to do what's asked of them. The large majority of the population does do what's asked, asked of them and has repeatedly done it each time it's been asked of them, including this latest wave. So I see no reason if a credible threat is well communicated in future, and let us all hope there isn't one, but if there is, I see no reason to think there won't again be a good public response. On that note of all this kind of learned knowledge we have from the pandemic, what's the biggest learning for you so far in this pandemic or the biggest surprise in how people behaved? <laughs> the biggest surprise, and it shouldn't be a surprise, is what I've just described, which is the degree to which the public is willing to make sacrifices for each other and for the public good. Um, we conducted a review right at the start of the pandemic, by we I mean my team, where we discovered that the international literature on this was that whenever publics faced emergencies, governments tended to panic that they'd all behave selfishly and that there would be a kind of lack of control and there would be chaos. And in fact, what tends to happen is pub the public tend to pull together, they tend to do what's asked of them and they tend to make the sacrifices they need to make to respond to a threat. We reported that actually, that that's what the literature showed. Despite the fact that as a scientist, I read those papers and I knew that that was what was likely to happen, somewhere deep down, I was still hugely surprised when I actually saw it in action and saw what proportion of people were willing to do this for each other on such a massive scale, on a kind of society-wide scale. So that would be the biggest surprise, even though the scientific papers I'd read told me it would happen. In terms of learnings, there's a separate point I'd like to make, which is I think there are really important learnings about science and about expertise that I've kind of had over the last year or two, where for me as a professional, I've had to really learn where my boundaries are, what I know about, what I genuinely have expertise about from having, you know, run studies, read appropriate papers, where the boundaries of that are and where I need to stop and hand over to kind of other disciplines and other experts. So I'm talking in particular for me, about, you know, I'm a behavioral scientist. I've obviously had to learn some epidemiology and some medicine and some virology and so on to try and talk about, make sure I don't make mistakes in this space, but always knowing where your boundaries are and not overstepping them. And I think exactly the same is true of the kind of epidemiologists and the medics and indeed the politicians. It's about knowing what you know and what you don't. And when we're all trying to coordinate this public response and have the public debates that we're having, where the boundaries of those expertise are, who is good at knowing them, who can you trust that they're always sticking to what they genuinely know about and admitting the stuff they don't know about, and how important that is, that where we get it right is where people are saying, look, this is what I know, this is what I don't know, and they can interact with other people who have different expertise and different perspectives, say, well, this is what I know, and this is what I don't know, and that we can get that together and get a good collective response. And I think the biggest learning I've got is the, how incredibly important that is, both for me personally as a professional and watching our societal response to this pandemic. 
That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Pete and Christine, for joining us today. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and thank you to our guests, Christine and Pete, for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry and my co-host Michelle Hennessy. If you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a one-off or monthly subscriber. You can also leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to help other people find us and to listen to our work. Thank you. Slán Pamel. <laughs>